everybody, this is Mike Burkholder with Contra Costa News, a podcast for the people and the businesses of Contra Costa County. I am super pumped for this interview today. Former Contra Costa County Supervisor Karen Mitchoff, who is now a candidate for Assembly District 15. How are you and how is the drive on Highway 4? The drive on Highway 4 was great. I love it. I was on cruise control. Everybody knew fast and slow. Lots of room. It was wonderful. And I'm Speed fine limit? too. Speed limit? Uh, a little over. Oh, like one mile? A little more than that. Okay. Well, you made it safe. That's okay. Um, so you're doing well? I'm doing well. You got four weeks to go? Four weeks from today is election day. So <laughs> I'm going to ask a sarcastic question. So you finished up with the Board of Supervisors a couple of years ago. You guys did some incredible work, regard- regardless of what everybody thinks. You did. You guys did a great job as a board. The budget was spot on. Programs were brought in. Why in the world do you want to go to the dysfunctional Sacramento? Well, several reasons. Um, I was asked to consider running, and so I gave that serious, serious thought. Uh, I think I can do good up in Sacramento because I'm not looking uh, for leadership. I'm not looking to be part of any uh, um, one particular group. I want to go up there and do the work of the people. I know every politician tells you that, but that's my focus. Uh, in addition to everything that we're dealing with here, I have an aged mother, and I want to look into how we help our aging population. We're going to have a majority aging population in the very near future, and either we have parents or elder or relatives that we're taking care of, or we will be having them, and there just need to be more resources. And additionally, as you know, um, my family experienced gun violence, and I want to see what I can do in addition to what has been done to further strengthen our gun control laws. I believe in the Second Amendment. I'm not talking about individuals who wish to have firearms in their home for safety or doing recreational or hunting, but the scourge of automatic weapons and how easy it is to get bullets and ammunition and uh, the havoc that they wreak. Um, You know, you can think about schools. Uh, We have our malls. We're just one community away from any other community that says, I never thought that could happen here. Yeah, I I think it's such a weird polarizing topic because you've got either hands-off, we want no rules, or we want overcorrection. We want a lot of rules. And there's no middle ground. So how do you plan on, and maybe not just this topic, but how do you stay away from the overcorrections that Sacramento seems to have been doing the last few years? Well, that was one of the reasons I was asked to run and one of the reasons I thought I would be uh, the best Uh, person for AD 15 uh, representation is because I'm seen as a pragmatic politician. I want to get the work done. I work with anybody. I listen with anybody. No particular agenda, but we've got to get things moving in Sacramento. And right now, even even though our nation is so polarized, so to to some extent is Sacramento and the individuals you're either on the left or you're on the right and what I'm understanding is a lot of work is not getting done because nobody knows how to sit down and work through the issues and get it done and that's who I am always have been always will be yeah I've just the overcorrection bothers me and I'm at this point where I don't really like either party but how can I get the most person to the middle like, I don't really don't care, Democrat, Republican, but how are we going to get actual to the middle, 
where there's some give and take. And I don't want to say everyone's not happy, but better policies, not this overcorrection, as we've seen with defund the police. I mean, even today, the big news, I don't know if you saw it yet because you were probably driving, but Newsom announced sending more CHP to Oakland in the East Bay. I did see that. 120 officers. That's a lot of officers. And it just goes hand in hand with what I've been talking about. People don't feel safe. Crime is happening. It's usually to somebody else, but it can happen to you. And people are living in fear. Just, you know, I can remember when there was a highway uh, for shooting out here in East County 40 years ago. Um, And then I read about it every once in a while. Uh, Not just here in East County. It happens uh, everywhere. But how scary to be driving and doing what you needed to do for your family and your friends and have to worry about people shooting other people from their cars. I mean, even just going to the grocery store, you come out, you're robbed. I mean, you have... You're just doing your shopping. Someone's filling out a cart, walking out. I mean, it, it's gotten insanity. It has. And, and you know, we can talk about law and order. That pendulum has swung too, uh, far, too far to the right sometimes, too far to the left. We want to be in the middle. Every police officer and law enforcement official I have ever spoken to wants to work with other law enforcement officers that they trust who are good people, want to protect the public, and serve their communities. It's unfortunate there are incidences here in Contra Costa County where that has not been how a police officer wishes to pursue his or her career. I've never met a good cop that wants to protect a bad cop. Absolutely. It's the weirdest, but the media will twist it. Oh, you know, blue boys, blue blue lives, all that stuff, right? Back to blue. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, that's not what it is. No, it's not. Uh, Support the police, but nobody wants to support a bad cop. No, of course not, because those are not only taxpayer dollars, but they they infect the community. They infect their their colleagues on police forces. I hate to bring it up, but all you have to look do is look at the city of Antioch. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's another topic, but... Um, you know, before we get into this interview, which I know we kind of started, I want to kind of talk about the dynamics of your race. Because I, I think you have a weird thing that could happen come election based on recent polling, where you guys were all basically in a dead heat, and then they do this bizarre bios as if it's just a rosy painted thing with Monica Wilson. Now she's got this seven-point lead. Well, she doesn't have a seven-point lead. She went up seven points. She was listed at 25%, Correct. which is one-fourth. And guess what? There's four people running in the race. Yeah. So nobody has a lead. But if anybody Googles Antioch, I don't see Concord or Brentwood wanting to support that. I'll leave that to the voters of those areas. but uh, So here's how I see this playing out, because I, I don't want you to be you know, bad-mouthing your opponents. Let me do that, um, because this is the, really the only race that I, I will bad-mouth a couple of your opponents. Anna Marie Farias, she lost me at Boycott 4th of July. Like, I will never let that go. You are in the United States of America, and you want to boycott, protest 4th of July. The other thing she did, and, and this was in the Martinez Gazette, where it's now come out, she brought in this attorney to bring up all these districtings that sued Martinez, the school districts. You got Antioch, uh, Brentwood, I think, even got one. I mean, there was a bunch of cities that just got this lawyer to come in and just screw everything up. And when we see the results of these districts' elections, 
you actually did not help minorities as it was supposed to do. No. uh, In fact, in my hometown of Pleasant Hill, we had to go through that. And um, we're always looking uh, for more diversity on on not only our council, but all our um, advisory committees. Turns out that... um, there are individuals who would be great at running, but they live in the district <laughs> exactly. of somebody who's an incumbent that everybody supports too. So what have you accomplished? Um, you know, I can see larger cities like over 100,000, Concord, Richmond, obviously San Francisco, Oakland, having district elections. But any uh, city under that... Like why is Oakley? Yeah. 50,000? Really? Yeah. You... you it was money. <laughs> Not only uh, did this lawyer come in, he came in with a threatening letter. Either we're suing you and you're gonna, it's going to cost you a ton of money, or we'll not sue you, but you still have to pay us. And I think it's in the 30, between dollars $30, $30, $30, Well, a lot of cities, um, I'll speak for Pleasant Hill, having been mayor in that city, um, and we're uh, dependent on sales tax, Um <laughs> That's a lot of money. I, yeah. It doesn't sound like a lot of money, for some, but for something as frivolous as that, and again, I don't want to uh, take away the, the concept of diversity, but I don't see that it's produced any diversity. Yeah, you have some great candidates that are just unfortunately in the same districts that cannot run because Correct. you're going to take out the other minority candidate. Right. And it, it's, it's just stupid. It is. Um, whereas the city would be better off if they both got elected. Yes. <laughs> so, um, Sonia Lito, don't know anything about her. The only thing I really know is that she was brought into the race by another former candidate in other elections, currently elected at um, <coughs> BART Board. Um, she can't win. However, she's going to disrupt the primary. And if she gets through, you're going to get basically an ass beating by 60% because the Democrats going to get 80% of the vote. So, she's just kind of a blocker. And then you got Monica Wilson, who's getting all the support from the unions. She's what, like, she got like a hundred, two hundred thousand dollar lead on everybody in money. Yes. Um, she's done absolutely nothing from for Antioch. She didn't speak up against two women sexually assaulted by the mayor. Um, she piggybacks on every single thing and takes credit for it. And as the longest serving council member in Antioch, how's Antioch been doing lately? I, so. It's a screwy district. It's a screwy, like, field. It's just weird. Well, that may be. It is not a screwy district. Um, I was AD 15 a, screwy because of the candidates. I uh, represented almost half of the district when I was on the Board of Supervisors. The 4th District is um, the western part of AD 15. I'm known in the eastern part just because I did serve 12 years. I worked collaboratively with Supervisor Glover, Supervisor Burgess, um, and worked to uh, expand services here in East County. A new Family Justice Center uh, was opened. Uh, they're looking to get a youth center out here in East County. We have a number of health services out here. Um, I, I think know the board just approved. Isn't it going into Antioch, the youth center? Uh, it may that may be, but. It, the, my last year, when we were uh, allocating Measure X funds, uh, we wanted to get a youth center. We have one yeah. in West County, uh, and it's it's proved invaluable. Uh, just 
in the, the services it provides. And that's one of the things we hear not only from youth but from parents is there's not a lot to do uh, in those critical hours, 3 to 6 p.m. And uh, uh, I'm very happy that East County is getting that because uh, it's much needed out here. Yeah. One of the things that really bothered me, though, and I, and I actually think that this election is one of the few that endorsements really don't matter because they're so political right now where you're not even looking at the candidate. You're looking at who's going to be the team player, which I don't think I've ever seen it this, like, no, we're going with the team player. We don't care about record or track record. It's, it's kind of weird. But what the hell's up with these law enforcement endorsements? Well, because I, I would have thought you were a slam dunk for some of these. Well, uh, I never assumed that I'm a slam dunk, but I do think that having worked for the Contra Costa Sheriff back uh, almost 40 years ago now in an administrative capacity and being close not only with then Sheriff uh, Rainey, but then Sheriff Roop and now Sheriff Livingston and with my own Pleasant Hill PD and Concord PD, um, uh, I thought I had the edge. Um, unfortunately, um, my deputy sheriffs, not my, the County Deputy Sheriff's Association decided to stay neutral in the race um, because they have a preferred candidate in the 5th Supervisorial District. And um, that's where that was. And then I understand that um, there was a, a request made of the Richmond Police Officers Association to uh, support Ms. Farias, and that's the only way you can get to the state uh, dollars. And so uh, we were working behind the scenes to neutralize that since we felt it was only fair that the police organizations in the district be the ones stating uh, should there be an endorsement and not from a POA outside of the district, uh, we weren't able to do that. And so Miss Farias did get the state, uh, what's called PORAC police and see, and, and that is the problem of having with these endorsements is because you have some knucklehead in Martinez going to his department, support her. She had nothing to do with, AD 15 has nothing to do with Richmond. And then PORAC didn't even do their own research. It was just a friend. That's it. Well, and I've heard... That there may have been. And some. let's go back to Anna Marie during the, the Black Lives Matter march. She led that. Defund the. I mean, what the hell are these people thinking? Again, uh, and I appreciate you, uh, your understanding that I, I don't want to badmouth my opponents. Everybody, I'm kind of forcing you into it, so I apologize. Well, it, it's, you know. I promise I, we'll get to the issues here no, in a second, I, everybody. Well, you brought up defund the police, and I think that's an excellent thing uh, to talk about. I never supported defund the police uh, when I was on the board of supervisors. I had a lot of constituents complain to me about it, uh, that position. Oh, you guys got crucified. Well, once I explained that defund the police doesn't do anything to protect the public, if anything, it creates more of a safety concern. Plus, the real issue was helping people of color who were... Um, more prone uh, statistically to be arrested uh, and the mentally ill, let's look at those causes. Let's put money in prevention and intervention so young people don't turn to gangs because that's where a lot of this comes from. And uh, once I explained that, they were like, oh, okay. It isn't, you know, 
I do support police. I come from a, my uncle was a revered sergeant in the uh, Portland Police Department, obviously working for the sheriff. Uh, and since in my elected roles dealing with law enforcement issues, I mean, I made sure that Measure X money supported the um, ex, um getting body cams. I was criticized for that. That's not a good use of that money. It's you, 100%. I mean, you how? Yeah, you can't stand <laughs> in front of me and say you want to hold the police accountable and then not understand why we support body cams. That is a way for accountability. Uh, and accountability is there just to uh, ensure to the public what they want from their local law enforcement. And that's where I get frustrated with Antioch is because you, you had like six or seven requests from Mike Barbanica or even Lori Ogerchok for that matter to bring in body cameras and, and that majority just would not bring body cameras. It was the weirdest damn thing. It's here we want transparency, but we're not gonna do body cameras in well, basket. It was and they, weird. They turned down grant money. Every cop in America should have a body camera. Yeah. I mean and I think Hello. every citizen wants every cop to have a body camera. All it does is keep everybody honest. The That's cop right. and the person that they're talking to. Right. It's a it's a recording, both visual and audio. But but as I understand it too, um, there was a time when there were a lot of federal funds available for federal um, excesses or uh, in, in purchase of things. So like the Sheriff's Department, they went and got a big, I, I call it, you know, like a, a Winnebago, only that's not what it was, so they could take it to scenes. The command center The command thing? center. Why is that a bad thing? You know, they call it the militarization, I didn't say that correctly, militarization of the police. But when you got bad guys out there with bad guns and other uh, ways to hurt, maim, and kill people, you need all the help you can get. I have no problem uh, accessing those grant funds to make the community safer. But Antioch voted that down. <laughs> yeah. Um, sticking on, so let's actually get into the issues. Enough about the dynamics of your race. Um, public safety, obviously, is one of my most important issues. Prop 47, you know, every, seems like every Democrat now wants to do some Prop 47 amendments, address real retail crime, um, a little bit more punishment for the crime. They actually finally also went into human trafficking and passed that after some bizarre blockage of the bill. Do you think this is an attempt to just, hey, an election's coming up. We got to somewhat get back to the middle or we're going to lose seats? I don't even think that was the thought process behind it. Uh, they're just hearing from their constituents. Uh, Prop 47 has not made us safer. Uh, the concept is great uh, because I think we all believe in rehabilitation. We want people to return from incarceration being able to be functioning members of society. But that's not what happened. By, by increasing the dollar amount, it just created a, a higher cap, if you will. And because uh, jails can be overcrowded, uh, be, and I do believe in no bail, or pardon me, in, in, in the process of bail. If you can be out uh, on bail, safely there's no reason to incarcerate you that costs the taxpayer more money and you're not a functioning member of helping your family if you can still work so i want to be real clear about that and i do believe our judges look at everything when they deny bail but these uh crimes they're not petty i mean 950 dollars is 
under a thousand, but that was the thing that was chosen. Anyway, I think there's a strong effort to get back to the middle. I don't think it was a political calculus by legislators to do that. I'm a data-driven person. And when I sat on the board, I wanted data. And data is showing that we are not safer with the impacts of Prop 47. Um, our public defender at the time, um, and, and that was her job, but wanted more money so she could hire more individuals so they could seek out individuals who prior to Prop 47 had been incarcerated, but because Prop 47 allowed for sort of a retroactive look, they... Um, uh, she was going out and finding cases. Um, that was a little disheartening, sitting on the Board of Supervisors. Um, because but you can't control another elected. I mean, that's the problem. Well, no, she's not elected. The public defender is actually appointed by the... Um, uh, actually appointed by the Board of... Well, the county administrator. Um, but um, it's just very difficult because... <laughs> Great, let's get people out of jail, but do we have the services for them? Do they have a good home structure, uh, some sort of family support system or friends support system? And that's not happening. You know, I, I, I think political individuals saw that there was more crime. And so what and would you like to see happen with with prop 47? What, what's kind of your overall thing? Because I, I understand the amendment where, Okay, fine. It's nine fifty, but if you start adding up all the merchandise over multiple retail thefts, okay, cool. But right now they're focused on the bigger fish getting all these thousands of dollars, but it's the little ones that are hurting the mom and pops. That's true, and so I would want some sort of revision. And again, I don't want to make promises a candidate that I can't keep. I always say that I need to. Uh, do more research on this, but the public wants to ensure better public safety. And if that means lowering the amount, then we need to lower the amount. I actually don't That's think... That's where Maratucci's bill didn't even go anywhere either because he wanted to go down to 500, I believe. Right, and, and I understand that there are other states that have a higher amount, but you mentioned the multiplicity of people committing crime after crime after crime. Yeah. And if it's just under that figure, nothing happens. That's where we have to look at how we revise the law such that is there a multiplier in there? If it's one time, okay, maybe, but two times is my, is my limit. You don't get to keep committing these um, petty thefts or whatever you want to call them because you're right it's the local mom and pops that are that are having a hard time you just have to look around your community the local gas station that has the the mini mart attached to it um dry cleaners um jewelry stores and the grocery stores are losing food left and right well and there's a very famous uh, uh we got music and we're back from commercial break we were talking about crime. Duplicating the... Right, duplicating, and, and two is, is too many. Um, people need to be held accountable because the public wants to see the the, the crime, the, the what I call... I the think they just want to see accountability. Right, and and but accountability can't just be a slap on the hand. It can't be, oh, you shouldn't do that. We're going to watch you on probation and what have you. But it also can't be an extreme of each time you commit a petty theft where you're going to lose a finger. No, of course not. It should never be any of that. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, my well, understanding and what I've seen of statistics is it leads to 
bigger yeah. and worse crimes. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about data on homeless success. And unhoused residents, homelessness, in my opinion, the state spent like $17 billion over four years. We're at an average of 42000 per homeless person we're spending. Obviously, nobody's solved this problem in the history of mankind. Like, So I totally get that. Um, what are your thoughts of what we could be doing better? Well, one of the things, and I'm very proud of this in Contra Costa County with the passage of Measure X, was to put money in place so that those in our homeless population uh, who have mental health issues and may go on and unfortunately commit some crimes, we now want to reach them. It's called Anytime, Anyplace, Anywhere, A3. Um, they get a program manager, and they work through that uh, to find stable housing. The other uh, side of some housing uh Folks with, without housing are substance abuse issues. We've always had that out there with our core teams, and because of Measure X, uh, a lot of cities were able to have their own core teams uh, as opposed to sharing the West, Central, and East. Um, and those work well, but there are, and we have a house, uh, I keep calling housing, uh, a homeless shelter where you can bring your pets. Um, there's conjugal visits. We've tried to make it so that if you are homeless and want services, there are programs out there for you. There are those who, not because they make the choice like, hey, I want to live outside, I think it's beautiful, but they choose to go unhoused because there are rules to follow. And unfortunately, not everybody either wants to or can follow the rules. So I am supportive of the governor's plan relative to care courts as it relates to our, our mentally ill population to get them into housing with services. You ask... And that's what kind of like Prop 1's going to do. Right. In addition, uh, bond money for additional housing units because that is a problem. If you have somebody who wants to... Um, take advantage of the services and move out of homelessness and uh, managing uh, to the extent possible their mental illness, they need a supportive living environment. And we just don't have enough of those. So that's another reason I support Prop 1. Um, you mentioned the money that has been spent and how much that allocates to. I don't know. I only knew what was happening in Contra Costa, and I was proud of our health services department, our law enforcement officers, those in the mental health and behavioral health field. Well, it's a no, topic you can't win. No, yeah, I mean that's what I was going to say. You're never going to solve the entire problem. Well, Antioch did. They got 82% success. Well, <laughs> I, I did some reading on that. You know, the the uh, the Project Home Key is in uh, Oh, and they lone wolfed it too. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Again, I'm not going to criticize. I wasn't there for that. I'm just glad that we have a Project Home Key um, location here in East County that is working. In other parts of the Bay Area, they haven't been working. Pittsburgh and, was pretty rough in the beginning, though. They're, I mean, they're, they're, I don't think Pittsburgh police knew what was coming. I don't think Contra Costa Fire knew what was coming with all the service calls. It slowed down, which is good. Um but that was a work in progress for a while. I mean, it was not. Well, no, it was. It's a it, new program, so. It was a new program, and so I can tell you that 
that the multidisciplinary approach is the best. They sit down and they work through the issues. And I, again, as you mentioned, it was a rough go in the beginning because the homeless people living in those hotel rooms, yeah, they have a lot of need for service calls. They're not used to that environment. And unfortunately, a lot of them don't have either family or friends who are there that can help them deal with some of these issues. And so, yeah, um, I mean, I think it, because I, I think at some point you also, how do you go after these bad actors that are these problem profiteers that are just taking the money, but we're not really doing it? Well, are you referring to community-based organizations? Some. Okay. Well, before I was on the Board of Supervisors, I worked in the county social services department, and one of my jobs was as a fiscal analyst uh, looking over certain contracts. And we were very strict on what the scope of services were, what the outcomes were, and we monitored that. When I got on the board, um, our health services department, uh, I... A situation came to head where a CBO uh, was overspending their budget and they weren't being monitored. So uh, I worked with my colleagues to put in place that all contracts that the county lets have to have not only a scope of service, they have to have outcomes defined, and they have to be held accountable to those outcomes. And if not, when the request for services comes out again, usually in three years, although we can... um, uh, shut down the contract earlier than that, we look to other service providers. So then, okay, so then piggybacking on that, and, and, I, and I hate throwing out bill numbers because not everybody knows them, but Assembly Bill 1957, which was introduced, I think, last week by Assemblywoman Lori Wilson, wanted to basically do best contracting uh, and allow other variables aside from the lowest bid to be considered because if you always do the lowest bid – doesn't mean you're getting the best quality. She's absolutely correct in that. And we had times when that happened, and and it was appealed because it, we did not select the lowest bidder uh, at the county level. So uh, if Assemblymember Wilson is introducing that at the state, I think that's one step forward. Yeah, I think I think it's a good idea because you, I've seen some pretty crappy companies that I know win jobs. I'm like, seriously, these guys? Well, and when I served on the Contra Costa Transportation Authority, obviously we were doing a lot of construction, and companies aren't stupid. They know that, so they do try to underbid, and then they come in with change orders afterwards. So we were really very strict on that, and there was, uh, I recall, one, I call it big because it was a lot of money, uh, contractor who wanted a ton of change orders after the fact, and we denied them because you bid for this and we know the market is this and you know there were some reasons if weather is that problem supply chain's a problem but overall uh and we held them accountable yeah no i i would not want to be in government procurement because of all the rules and it's not fun um but there's a reason for it no 100 percent. and and so uh, I love that you mentioned that because a lot of times, oh, bureaucracy, oh, it takes forever. Well, there's a reason it, it should not take forever. Uh, just look to San Francisco and their whole building permit process. And I heard something as crazy, 82 permits you need before you can even start? Which is just I can't even fathom that. I want to know what these are. Yeah, I mean, we <laughs> want housing built. We want retail and commercial built. Yes, uh, builders need to go through a process. Uh, but after that, it, it, it shouldn't be like 
why are you putting processes in place that tell uh, developers to, to go someplace else? I'm always asked, and elected officials are asked, how do you improve economic development? What are you going to do for economic development? Well, government doesn't per se drive economic development. It puts the processes in place so that business wants to come to the community. It streamlines where it can be streamlined. It works with uh, the business owner if there's a problem. There's just ways to do it. And then you encourage business to come into your community and all that can do is lift and elevate the economic viability of that area. That's okay, economic so, development. Okay, great. So let's go into the housing then, because you just said that government sets the process with housing. And we have so many damn rules, so many sequas, so many, you know, urban limit line. We got, I mean, hell, look at Concord. They can't even get that acreage even built. I mean, what a fiasco that is. Well, that's not because of rules and regulations. Well, it's an idiot council, but that's just me saying that. But what's your plan to increase the housing supply? I want to take away the weaponization of CEQA. And what I mean by that is, and I hope the majority of your listeners are aware of what's been going on in Berkeley around People's Park and the university wanting to build student housing there and local residents said, oh, you didn't look in the potential for noise of building a multi-story dorm. Common sense at some point. Well, there will be additional noise, but that wasn't the purpose of CEQA. Uh, it was to protect if a project generated like like a uh, I can't even think of something, but uh, let's say a car dealership. <laughs> you would never put that obviously in uh, a residential area, but where you do put it, you want to make sure that it doesn't increase the noise level um, dramatically. There are there are scales there. So anyway, again, back to the Berkeley situation, you know, the court has upheld that that CEQA was misused. Those are my words, not the court's words. But in the end, the court declared that the project could move forward. Um, that's what I want to see change. CEQA is important. There's a reason for it. Uh, I'm not familiar with what happened with Dodger Stadium, but my understanding <laughs> is back in the day, either Governor Brown or Governor Schwarzenegger relaxed CEQA issues so they could get that built. But I've been working on Delta issues not only the 12 years I was on the board, but all the years I worked for the county, having worked for former Supervisor McPeak and Supervisor DeSonier, that... Um, CEQA can be used when there are legitimate, legitimate environmental issues. It should not be used because, and I'm probably going to get hit by this, but labor wants a project labor agreement on a, uh, a project that's to be built. And so they file CEQA saying something has, has uh, occurred under CEQA that should stop the project. CEQA should be used the way it was intended. So to help move housing along. Again, getting away from the weaponization of CEQA. Um, we need to look at areas where housing can go. Yes, Contra Costa has an urban limit line. Um, it's worked very well, but there's a provision in there uh, 
There's five things that have to be met if you want to go outside the urban limit line. Um, It is held, and we all love our open spaces, but I travel up Highway 5 a lot back and forth to Oregon where I have family, and there's a lot of agriculture out there, but there's still also a lot of open space. And And there's communities popping up just in the middle of nowhere. Well, Solano and that (laughs) whole... I doubt that will ever come to fruition. It, it's just the, the textbook hey, money case. Talks. Money talks. Well, but it's the textbook case of how not to. We're to talking go about there. the billionaire community. Uh, on the other hand, you have agricultural areas where third and fourth generation don't want to do that anymore. It's their property. If they can get it rezoned, why shouldn't they be able to sell and a development come in? So. Oh no, we got to stick in 1950, everybody. Well, but I think each, but it, see, and that's where I differ from the state is because it's like, yeah, the the farmer that wants to sell their land, they should be able to, but each community should be able to make that decision, not right. the state. Correct. Which is what Scott Weiner in Sacramento or in San Francisco keeps wanting to impose San Francisco rules on everybody else, but a town like Byron has nothing to do with San Francisco, so how could you have the same rules? Well, and that's been my. Um irritation with uh, that bill all along when I served on the Association of Bay Area Governments, it was just readily easy to see that what works in San Francisco, which actually nothing is working, you mentioned earlier with the need for 82 permits, does not fit our um, urban-suburban area out here in Contra Costa County. There has to be flexibility in how we go about building housing. And maybe it's by region, maybe it's type of land. We need to look at that. I need people who understand that. It's always what I say. As an elected official, I can't know everything, but I want to learn as much as I can before I make a decision. So I would invite everybody in. Tell me what you don't think is working. Tell me what you do think we need to do. Um, I believe one of my uh, opponents... uh, talks about tax incentives for builders to come in, and and that sounds good on paper, but I want to know what those tax incentives are because when you give tax incentives, that basically takes away taxes for at least a brief period of time that provide services in the community. So you have to be able to weigh that. Well, then you raise them on the back end, and then the person living there gets hurt. But, I mean, that's just one scenario. But what are your thoughts on what the state's doing now with these? You could build in church parking lots to... I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I think it, well, my church, the parking lot just barely covers enough room for uh, the the parishioners there, so it wouldn't work. But uh, some uh, religious organizations have bought large pieces of property. I am looking more like at Sun Valley Mall. Uh, we are not a car-driven society as much anymore, especially after the pandemic. There's a lot of online uh, shopping, and you can argue one way or the other how good that is for the economy. But out there sits all this parking space that it... Well, it, Somersville Town Center Mall in Antioch, too. Right. And and with stores closing down, it, it doesn't... Um, they don't have the need for the, the individual car. I mean, I can remember in the day when the Sun Valley Mall parking lot was filled, but it was only around Christmas. And there sat all this land. Um, So we need to look at, and those are commercial areas, they're usually near transit areas that can be used and and they can be up and running, if you will. Or you can put tiny houses uh, or other forms of, of home 
for people who need to live there. I mean, some communities, and I've seen it in Richmond, they use, um, you know, the, the cars on railroad cars yeah. to do that. Believe me, I joke. Sometimes I think I'd like to live in a tiny house because there wouldn't be so much to take care of, and it would oh, I, I need all the time. <laughs> See, I wish we would go back to like a thousand to fifteen hundred square foot homes because I, I just. Why do we need a 4,000 square foot home? I understand you have three or four families living in that. Okay, but then you're impacting the sewage in the area, the parking, you know, whatever. But I, I just don't understand. We've become so cost prohibitive, we can't build those smaller homes for even the, an aging population. It's very difficult. Uh, and I know of one project in Pleasant Hill at Choice and Aging where they are building uh housing for the aged. You, you just don't see that these days. Uh, and I'm very proud that I'm helping that along and have been one of their many supporters. So housing is a tricky issue, but you're right. The first comment you made when we introduced this subject, one size does not fit all. We've got to figure out for certain communities. Then there's the communities like Woodside in, in uh, on the peninsula. You know, again, the weaponization or Huntington of Huntington Beach. Well, they were, <laughs> they were weaponizing Sequa around a mountain lion. Um that's just ridiculous. Well, it wasn't a Huntington Beach that sued, basically. We're not going to follow your your low-income housing requirements? Well, I don't know about the low-income housing. I forget housing. what it was. You're right, but they have sued the state over housing requirements. Yeah. And, you know, there's a housing element required, uh, a recommend, not a recommendation, a requirement in order to get approval and additional money. Uh, one of those issues is RENA, the Regional Housing Needs Assessment. The state comes out with this huge number. Uh, Some they, cities cannot hit. We can't. Pleasant Hill is a city that is built out pretty much. And as I mentioned earlier, because of Prop 13 and when Pleasant Hill was incorporated, it doesn't get property taxes. So, again, it relies on sales tax because I've said, why do we have so many hotel motels? It's because of the sales tax that it drives as opposed to property tax. And when you build, uh, you know, there was this wonderful land available, but who came in a developer of multi-million dollar homes? Um, I'm looking, uh, be interested in Concord, not so much the Naval Weapons Station, but downtown. Um, there's plots there that are now finally being developed for multi-housing, and um, but it just seems slow. That's not a criticism of Concord. I th it's just a criticism of the yeah, process. And I, and, and I think people in Contra Costa also need to realize kind of the low-income housing from the county. It was like there was a plan at one point, oh, we're going to hit all of our numbers by placing 33% in Discovery Bay. And it was like, whoa, instant community growth. Like that's probably not a good idea to just – Mix in these <laughs> wealthy homes with <laughs> anyway. That's another topic. You brought up choice and aging, fabulous program. Um, a great nonprofit. Debbie Toth has taught me a lot about the aging with dignity. Um, and a few years ago, she advocated very well. Uh, the senior population was going to get a lot of money, and then, like a yo yo, the governor pulled it back. Seniors are going to get hurt. How do we protect seniors going forward? Well, and Debbie did a great job with her coalition. They got up to Sacramento, and they got that stopped, actually reversed. Um, you know, it's, it's difficult because when I decided to run, as I mentioned earlier, aging and elder issues were very important to me. But now we're hearing there's a budget deficit. And I've never been one to go up uh, and run for office and say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. 
uh, because I don't know what the finances are. You can read about them in the paper, but until you get staff, even that's not even correct. <laughs> no, well, it, whether it is or isn't, it, it's too broad of a brush. You need to get down deeper into the details. So I've had to sort of change that uh, outlook relative to elders. What I want to do now is protect what they have and look at areas where we can do more. Um, I'm not saying that I will be able to, but I am the only candidate running who has put elder and uh, the disabled issues uh, front and center of my campaign. Yeah, no, I think that's such an underrated topic that people aren't really thinking about. But for those of you voting, um, if only one candidate's talking about it. And look, I'm not even 50 yet. I'm low 40s. But if I'm realizing there's a problem with protecting the seniors and affordability and housing and I mean, we got to start doing something. Well, and it does impact your generation because you've got parents or elders in your family, and that responsibility comes back on you. Yep. Now, if you've been able to save up money, but you know, fifteen, ten to fifteen thousand dollars a month to take care of somebody uh, with dementia, most people can't afford that unless they have had long-term. Um, insurance. But even then, I have friends who have that. The premiums have just skyrocketed because the cost is so much. So we've got to find a way. In my case, um, my mother has a very small pension. It doesn't cover her uh, board and care fees, so I supplement that. Um, and, and that's not sustainable in the long run. Um, and I'm thinking of you and others in your generation. You will be taking care of parents, and you've got children that you're still taking, you know, the, the proverbial sandwich generation. We are living longer. That can be a good thing and not a good thing. Yeah, and, and, and I just look at so many people that are paying those elderly care facilities that are six, seven, eight, ten thousand, fifteen thousand. 15,000. Like, dude, that, no way long term. No. And, and I'm not saying those facilities don't deserve that money. Those go into but it's out of, the cost is out of whack. Well, it's out of whack for most people's budgets. It's not out of whack when you're trying to provide a service and still be a business. Um, most of those are nonprofits. Um, but I had my mother in, in a uh, assisted field assisted living facility so all your meals are there you had housekeeping uh they did um a little bit of laundry and different things that costs money and it goes to those in our society who provide the care whether to our youngest and vulnerable or our oldest and vulnerable they don't get paid a living wage um and so we see that we need to raise uh their hourly rate in order to attract people because, believe me, I've learned it takes many angels to do that work. Yeah. Um, and, and they're specifically called by God to do it. I truly believe that because it's not the job for the faint of heart. No. And it's a, it's a difficult, just even as a nonprofit, I mean, just the stories you see and the abandonment and then just aging and dignity. And I'm going to go back to the aging with dignity because it really is what it is. Yes. And nobody calls it that. Yeah, because we can choose to warehouse our elders and not think about it because maybe our parents died when we were younger, weren't raised around grandparents. I was. Uh, we don't value our elder population as other cultures do. And um, I mentioned people are living longer. They're living healthier, and that's great. 
um, I've learned with my mother at 93, medicine has kept her alive, um, but to, to what avail? Sure. Her quality of life. And, and I'm talking about this personally, but I know that your listeners, this resonates. Every time I've talked to some individual or group about it, they all shake their heads up and down. They know this is what's going on. Yeah, we, we've in East County, we've had this topic for many years of just senior transportation because we're out in the middle of nowhere trying to get all the services over in Central County. So we, we, we know. Put money towards that, too. I'll take some uh, um, kudos from Measure X to work with that population and our bus driver community to make those trips more seamless so that you don't have to call or get on a bus at 8 o'clock in the morning and yeah. then get a transfer where you have to wait a half hour and then maybe get into Martinez for what was to be uh, an 11 or, or 11.30 appointment, and then you have to reverse it. It's going to take a while. It takes money. But again, that's better serving that population. Can you imagine, and as Debbie, I'm sure, has told you, some of these individuals have continence problems, uh, have uh, mental health issues. Navigating, it's difficult enough for us. I mean, we can talk about public transit, and I hear the complaints about they see buses going by with too few people on there. Well, maybe we need to make smaller buses and more frequent trips. Yeah, I'm, I'm all for the shrinkage of buses because not a lot of people are using them these days. But if you had these 10 to 20 seat buses and you could do more trips, that's you fine. Could. It's probably the same amount of money, but you need more, more drivers maybe. And you need more capacity. I think even people who are able-bodied would tend to use uh, our bus system more frequently if they knew the bus would be there within a half Reliability. hour. Reliability. Yeah, as opposed to, well, there's not another bus for two hours. Well, I'll just get in my car and drive across town. So what, Okay, so speaking of transportation, what are your thoughts on the train to nowhere? I go back and forth on it. Um, I, I'm, I don't like that we've invested so money, much money, and then we'd abandon it. On the other hand, how are we going to afford this thing, and does it really provide the service that we need? Getting people up and down the Central Valley is great, but Los Angeles, San Francisco, San uh, Sacramento, and I'll include Reading, people need to get there. Those are business centers, and uh, so... It's a tough one. Yeah, I don't have an answer for you other than... I want to see what comes forth from transportation experts on what we do, what it's going to cost. I mean, just look down in Santa, San Jose, obviously not bullet train, but again, the BART station that's been uh, promised down there, I mean, the budget is just... BART's uh, another disaster. Yeah, we won't go there. Um, if, if people want to talk about BART, they can contact Glazer. He's all about BART. Um, let's go completely opposite perspective. Education. Mm -hmm. Uh and I'm going to say this very badly, but Democrats own that. Uh, education is just a complete disaster. How do you improve education in California, given all the, the rules, the, the unions? Um, I mean, how do we fix this? And I know you read a book like every day. Like, <laughs> I mean, you, got, you whatever, you read like a book a day. How do we get people wanting to actually learn again? Well, those are two different questions. If you want people to be active and want to learn uh, as they age, you have to make it attractive. You have to make the subject matter. 
you have to make it available to everyone. GVC has what's called Emeritus College. Um, those are for people who are retired and want to go back and learn something. Um, so we need to make that available. But how to fix education? You know, uh, I am a product of local public schools. I had what I consider a very good education. I hear from teachers that one of the problems are children coming to school not prepared. Um, that's because their mom and dad didn't get them to bed or didn't feed them breakfast in this morning. Yes, there are those programs for them. But if a child can't sit down and be ready to learn, plus when I was raised, and I would assume when you were raised, you were told you're going to school and you're going to behave and whatever the teacher says is what you do. Yep. That's not the case today. Uh, I understand parents wanting to be involved and what have you, but there's such competition for uh, moving on to uh, the best college or getting, well, I guess they're getting rid of SATs, but it, it's so competitive that teachers, or pardon me, parents are telling teachers, you can't give my child that grade. Uh, he needs a, or she needs a better grade. That isn't the role. You are to support your, your child in a happy learning environment. And I'm making this very simplistic. But um, environment is, is what's so important for, for learning. And children need to be prepared. Now, teachers, it's very difficult because every teacher I've known really has the student's interest at heart. But as a labor organization... Um, I want to sit down and listen to them. I've been interviewed by them. Uh, I know what their concerns are, uh, one of which is uh, if they do testing of students, should the teacher be held responsible? Well, to some extent, on the other hand, again, if that child comes to school not prepared, how can you blame the teacher? Or little Johnny doesn't like the teacher. I'm just going to make my answers up now that teacher got low score. Right. Um, so... <laughs> It's going to be, it's a Herculean task, but we've got to get teachers and parents to a better place for the betterment of the student. Now, I See, don't... I, I think it's a simpler... I think the parents are the problem because I think the parents have just basically taken the kid's side and abandoned teachers. They look at teachers as daycare. And I know, and I'm with you, I think there's 90% of teachers that I know, and I'm and I'm because I don't know everybody, but I, must, I would say very confidently... 90% of teachers want to do the right thing and educate, but then you've got... They've got to do so much else in the classroom. You're not only a teacher, you're a counselor, you're a babysitter after school, you're maybe giving, you know, feeding them, you're, you're doing all this other crap that you should never have done, but you've also got a state that wants more kudos to their lowering the standards, and we got to stop lowering the standards. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, we have to have a population ready to enter the workforce, whether that's after they graduate from high school and choose to go out in the workforce, they're not going to make as much money. I mean, let's just be honest. On the other hand, if they go to a trade school uh, and or decide to go to college, uh, we need to get them to that point so that they can enter society being able to be productive. Now, I'm going to say something pretty controversial. Not Please everybody do. needs to go to college. Um, there are good jobs out there with where you can go into trade school. Some students just aren't built psychologically, uh, mentally for uh, learning in the classroom. Uh, they do better 
those are the entrepreneurs. Those are those who go out and, again, start up companies. Again, I'm speaking in generalizations. I went to Diablo Valley College and got my AA degree. Uh, I had that uh, for 28 years before I decided I needed to finish my four-year degree because I was working for the county, and in order to move up in management, I needed the the BA. (laughs) And now the state wants to get rid of four college degrees. (laughs) Well, I'm glad I did it. Um, But it's been interesting because that was in 2002, And in 2003, I was appointed to the Pleasant Hill Recreation and Park District. Obviously, I was still working uh, full-time. That was part-time. But sometimes being in an elected office means you just have to have good old common sense. Uh, Again, you don't have to know everything, but you have to know where to go to get the information. You know, that is a very powerful statement, in my opinion, because I, I, for some reason, I think once you get elected, people lose common sense. And they're worried too much about the optics and what people will think, what will be the retaliation, not so much doing the right thing for the community. And, and these are local city council people that this is your community and you're worried about what someone will say about you? Well, we, Come all, ha- on. we all have feelings and uh, don't like to be... I'm heartless. Uh, well, told <laughs> that we're not doing a good job. On the other hand, you do have to have a pretty thick skin to be in public service, especially yeah. today. Um, the pandemic uh, afforded us Zoom. Uh, it, it opened up to more people being involved, and, and I applaud that. But it also opened it up to people who took that as a platform for them to air whatever grievance they want. We were fortunate when I was on the board. I don't think it's happened since either, but in other communities, including Walnut Creek and uh, another one around here, I can't remember where, where anti-Semitism and people uh, coming on just to screed these horrible yeah. statements, that's not what the public uh, pu- arena Public is comments for. have been abused. It's oh, been it weaponized. And, and I, uh, you know, the, the concept is you're supposed to be able to speak on the issue that's before you. Then when general public comment, it's supposed to be out about anything that is under your jurisdiction, I was chairing a subcommittee of ABAG, the finance committee, and uh, this gentleman came on and just started. This was like, well, obviously during the pandemic, so two to three years ago, uh, spouting all these horrible Nazi Hitler comments. I cut him off and told them to cut him off. Now, council is always a little worried about that. Still always the lawyers. But I, well, they've got a job to protect the jurisdiction, and uh, I never got any uh, blast back for it, but we're not going to tolerate that time. You don't get to say horrible things like that. You can say horrible things about me. I don't like it, but that's what public comment is for. It is not to espouse your own uh, personal policy on any given issue. Yeah. Um, back to education, though, because I want to—I do yes. want to touch on on it because I, I think the early Head Start, early education is a great thing that they they did starting kindergarten earlier. Um, let these kids be a sponge. I think that's fantastic. But I think what what Sacramento's forgetting about is like the third grade through high school and how to keep them engaged. I mean, now you've got this willful defiance law, whatever. I mean, I don't agree with it. If you're disrupting, you need to go somewhere else. That's just my opinion. But how do we keep these kids engaged? Because like you, um, 
I now like to read, but I, it took me 40 years to actually figure out I like to read. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we get people to just want to be, continue to be a sponge? And you can't force it. Well, again, it goes back to the home environment. Uh, you need to be reading to your kids. You need to be reading them a variety of books on issues. You need to be discussing issues at uh, the dinner table. I know that sounds quaint and a little, you know, father knows best because we don't all sit down and have dinner at the same time because of schedules. But parents need to continue to light that fire in their children to want to learn. Whatever it is, doesn't have to be a strict curriculum. If you're interested in X, and then you go and, and learn all you can about X. It may not be what you learn in your third grade classroom. And again, to me, it, it it's education in the classroom is uh, peaking interest in I want to know more, you know, uh, and... So let me ask, this is a bizarre yeah. concept because okay. I, it just kind of hit me as we're talking. Like it took me 40 years to actually like reading. What if we don't have to start school at three or four years old, five years old, and maybe you start them in kindergarten at like eight or nine, 10, 11. I mean, I just change the no, whole system. No, it's too late because <laughs> uh, having sat on first five. And that's a really stupid comment by me and I'll own it. But But zero to five is when you've got to get in there and get those, what they call dendrites in your brain, expanding. That's why young people have an easier time learning foreign languages. Got it. Because of their brain, the dendrites, and I'm using that term because I was fortunate to hear, uh, she's since passed away, but she was a professor at UC Berkeley who really sparked this whole idea. The way dendrites grow in your brain is by new things, hearing different music, hearing different languages, hearing different things that your parents are doing. And so I'm a strong believer in early education, zero to five. Uh, Transitional kindergarten is important. Um, I was born and uh, lived the first seven years of my life in Oregon. I never went to kindergarten. It wasn't required. And to my understanding, it's still not required here. In Oregon's Canada. a weird state. No, it isn't. It's a wonderful state. It just is different to some people from California. But, you know, that was back in, the, I won't mention what decade, I, more and more kids are going to kindergarten. And first of all, you get them in that school environment, which is good. You mentioned daycare. Unfortunately, more women are having to work outside the home along with whatever two-parent situation it is. So, uh, and, you know, some parents do homeschooling. Uh, I, I'm amazed at that. There's no way. See, I think Zoom made it so that some parents realize, oh, teaching's really easy. I'm going to homeschool them and stay away from all the crap they want to start teaching. Well, you know, I know there's I been... I couldn't do it. There, no. It, again, I talked about people taking care of our elders. Our teachers are angels, too. 100%. They're, it, they're called to the profession, <laughs> and, and I admire that. Um, and I've had... Somebody told me once if you can count... Uh, five teachers throughout your career who've made an impact on you, uh, you're, you're really lucky. And I sat down and did that, and I thought, oh, there's many more than that. I remember the other ones. They were good teachers, but there were five that really sparked something in me. And if you multiply that over and over by how many teachers there are out there, that's a pretty great thing. See, I think I ruined my education because I just didn't like school at the time. I wanted to get out. Like, sure. I'm not meant to be sitting down. It's conformist. I learn, I learn by doing, not sit there 
hey, what's the date? Yeah, well, yeah. Um, that's and, another topic. Well, but it is, you mentioned how are we going to fix education. We have to figure out how to provide multiple ways of learning because we have such a diverse population. Speaking of learning, uh, climate change. Uh, we're having some really weird, bizarre weather. Uh, a lot of fires, flooding. I'm not going to ask you if climate change is real or fake or moneymaker, but is Sacramento doing a decent job in addressing potential climate change? I think they are. Um, you know, what is this? Uh, 2024. In 2014, I would no more have thought of, of, of buying or leasing an electric car than anything. I have one today. Um you make the environment uh, in, and incentivize it enough so that, and we won't get into Elon Musk, but individuals such as him who have this capacity to see what can be done, I applaud them, and we need to do more of it. There's not enough, um, I, you know, I'm going to be criticized because I've taken big oil money. Um, I've worked with the refineries. We have four refineries in our county uh, and, and five in the Bay Area. So you can't just say shut down tomorrow. Uh, we are one of the largest um, suppliers of jet fuel. So if you're flying somewhere, folks, it's probably you're getting the um, gasoline, if you will, from a Bay Area refinery. Well, that's where I get in, in with this whole Taylor Swift thing with all the stuff she's doing with her private jet, right? Um, but that's, again, another topic. But, you know, you mentioned the oil companies that are funding, that have donated to you, right? Well, you, you also have an, an opponent that wants the complete opposite with a moratorium on gas stations in Antioch. Not only that, you killed a gas pipeline or whatever in Antioch so that at some point when the laws change, because this is coming, you want to remodel your kitchen? Guess what? You can't replace your gas stove. Now you got to go to an electric stove. Hey, and it's going to take 20 minutes to heat up that pot of water. Well, we, we did take that up on the air board, uh, and uh, I believe it's the city of Berkeley had its own law, and now that's been overturned by um, a higher court. I that don't. was because of the restaurants that just couldn't do it. Right, and the, there's a federal law that says local municipalities can't interfere with uh, the transmission of electricity. and so that's I mean, I just don't understand. You want to cook with... A heat plate, basically? Like, what the hell is wrong with you? Well, there's something to be said about choice, but we live in a community. And, you know, um, the data I saw said that electric stoves uh, were better for the environment than gas. But you, then you have from the chefs of the world that like to cook with gas. So you've got to figure out, you know, how can you put that flexibility, not either or, but an and in there. But, but back to climate change and the refineries, you know, uh, again, any politician will tell you this, and we all mean it. Money plays a role in politics to some extent. It does not play a role in my being an elected official. Money from whichever source, and the only there's only two I won't take money from, that's tobacco and the NRA. You need money to run a campaign. It doesn't mean that you have, in my world, better access, because everybody has access. So uh, refineries are going to be around a while. They're not going away tomorrow. They're not going away in 10 years. But we do have two refineries that are moving more to biofuels. 
that gets criticized too because of the carbon footprint from bringing the feedstock from the Midwest. Um, we live in a complex society. What is best for the environment? That's what we have to be looking at. And we've got a lot of people working at those refineries, and I'm sticking up for them because they help our local economy and communities. They have families and friends. They spend money at the grocery store, at the cleaners, at, at the pizza place. You know, So it's not this monolith of, oh, refineries are bad. No, they're not. Um, I've taken tours. I know there's uh, PBF and Martinez has had some not good press, uh, deservedly so, um, for how they've treated the community. Um, but I applaud Mayor Zorn and the city council for putting more, uh, I don't know if it, uh, better PR in place. I wouldn't say it's better. It's more communication. It's, and that's all people want. Yeah. What is that smoke in the sky? Why are there black flakes dropping down? Why is that pig flying? Well, <laughs> I hope we don't see that. But um, people just want to know, and then they can make the decisions on what they need to do to protect themselves. Yeah. No, I, I don't mind people taking money, but I do mind when people take money and then are a hypocrite about it. And, you know, look, everybody that's donated to your guys' campaign, anyone could go look at the forums and, and they could make the decision for themselves. Which is why, you know, when I did that article on the fundraising, I thought about including some of them. But then I'd be a hypocrite just pointing out, like, one out of, like, a hundred. Mm-hmm. So I was like, eh, everyone could go look for themselves. Yes. Uh, They're very interesting documents. Yeah, well, <laughs> I won't go there. Uh, the Delta. Yes. Um, this one isn't getting talked about a lot, which is really weird given the governor's announcement in December. I know that you support no tunnels. Uh, how are you going to actually get other people to care about it? Because this is the quietest I've ever seen Northern California lawmakers like fight this thing. Well, don't, uh, I would um, say to our, uh, your listeners, don't assume that things aren't being done just because you're not hearing about it. The EIR is now in the process of being certified. And again, when I talk about weaponization of CEQA, this is one area where, we're not going to be weaponizing it. There are legitimate concerns, and I haven't read the EIR. I've only been working in the field for 20-plus years. But what I've learned is that a through-tunnel conveyance under the delta doesn't create one more drop of water, and it's detrimental to our environment, our health, our economic growth. What we found is when we took that message to those in the South and in the Central Valley, they heard us, but what really resonated was the price tag because um, the law is that in order for any uh, through uh, conveyance to be built, the water districts have to pay for it. Um, But in the end, the taxpayer will be paying for it because at the current price tag, water districts would have to pass the cost on to their ratepayers. There are ways to create water, and I'm not saying taking it away from nature, but we do need more reservoirs. We do need groundwater recharge. There's uh, a lot going on. I really applaud Southern California. They've done a bang-up job. Um, My own personal opinion is the Westlands uh, Water District, which is the largest uh, of its kind, um, they've changed in their leadership, 
And they have finally gotten the message, too, of how much it costs. I mean, I have sat down toe-to-toe, nose-to-nose. Why won't you support a tunnel? This is the only way. And along with some other colleagues from other counties, no, it's not. And we're not going to say that it is. Um, Just because you can't get fresh water all the time doesn't mean that you take it away from those of us who live in the Delta. Well, it goes back to the whole Sam Kinison thing from the 80s. (laughs) You you want water, don't live in a desert. Well, that's true. Um, (laughs) There's a book written called Cadillac Desert, and it's exactly about uh, the water. I mean, you can watch Chinatown. Uh, Goliath was recently streamed. I can't remember which service uh, it did but it talks about the water wars and you know when you watch some of the old westerns um, and you think how could they be fighting over water well you know now I get it because especially this the groundwater you know if you have a well on your property they're way below where they should be and it's taking it from neighbors too so there's always the fight of the environment versus the farmers, the cities versus the rural area. You know, you drive down five to LA, you'll see signs about don't steal our water or, or you know, we're without, it's like, yeah. it, it, it's, it's such hyperbole and melodrama that doesn't need to be there. I just don't understand, I've never understood this, is that water is like the most important thing. And when you're talking infrastructure of a train to nowhere and building, you know, spending all this money on homelessness. Water storage, like, should almost, until we solve that, like, what are you wasting this money somewhere else at? Well, and that was always a criticism when a development came before the Board of Supervisors, and I'm sure cities heard it too. How can you be building more housing when we're in a water shortage? We don't get to not do that. That isn't one of the reasons that you can deny a development. They've got to figure it out. Why would I buy a house in an area if I can't get water service? Um, but uh, you're right. I mean, it, California needs to be welcoming uh, to people coming here with new and fresh ideas. We need to house our population. But at what point is it going to the tipping point? And I don't know where that is, and I hope we never reach it. Um, we're going to have to figure it out. Um, you said earlier, and I got two more questions. You list, you know, your gun violence prevention uh, on your website. You support restricting firearm advertising to minors, restrictions on ghost guns, and allowing victims to sue gun manufacturers. Why is that important to you? Well, first of all, we don't want people who aren't old enough to figure out to pl- to have a, a loaded weapon. Um, I grew up in the area where folks play, you know, my brother and friends had BB guns, and they'd go out and they weren't. Did they have a Red Rider? Uh, no, we didn't have a Red Rider, but we lived behind uh, the flood control ca- canal right below DVC, and so he'd go out there. He never would shoot an animal knowingly, but there is a culture that teaches us to use guns. I'm not going to stop that. That isn't my intent. Um, to be able to sue gun manufacturers, they need to get the message. And, you know, I know that what's his name, LaPointe or Laporte, just recently um, decided to retire. They've done such damage. I don't see them working with us on education and different issues. There's a lot the NRA could do to reduce gun violence and still be a viable organization. But again, we, we have 
places in this country that to them it's a God-given right to have two or three guns, they're not the ones shooting up people, but there are people shooting up people who are being able to get through uh, the, the red laws, the yellow laws, the, the background checks, and do so much hurt and damage. Why not put those restrictions in? If I was to purchase a gun, I don't have a problem. You've got to get a driver's license. You've got to go take the test. Um, I'm not saying that you have a test for a firearm, but there's got to be better. See, I actually think there should be. I think you should, and maybe test isn't the right word, but there should be a, a public safety course. Yeah, like a, a proficiency, yeah. you know. And why do you need an assault weapon? I don't get it. Yes, I've heard from people, they are fun to shoot. That's not my idea of fun, but okay. But to have a weapon available that can do such damage in such a short period of time, why would we want those? Why? You know, you want those for war, not that I'm advocating that, but that's what they were meant for. They are not meant for Main Street USA. No, I, I, and I, it's such a, a tough topic even for me because I, I believe anybody that wants a gun should have a gun. Um, that's their choice. But then you get into the mental health issues where if someone's on a short temper and they're known to be aggressive and known to be retaliatory, narcissistic, I mean, there's a million conditions I can name that I'm not, but I don't know if I want that person to have access. You don't want that person. In today's paper, it's... They completed one day of deliberation and have not reached a verdict in the case back in the Midwest where I, the mom and dad gave a kid a gun for Christmas. He was like 12 or 13. He'd been displaying weird uh, behaviors. Teachers called him in for a conference, um, and they didn't do anything about it. And then he went back to the classroom and killed some, I don't know if he yeah, killed one I person. Or that one. So the mom's on trial. And I'm reading, it's taking a day to deliberate. Now, I don't know the laws of that state, and, and I trust the legal process, but that people, do you hold a parent responsible? Yes, especially for a minor. Look what happened, a horrible situation back in Newton, back in 2014, um, where the kid was a kid. He was, he was of legal age, but he had mental health problems. He got all these guns, and then he kills his mother before he goes and does the rampage. We're not good at identifying those people. Uh, Maybe that's the we're – not, we're not getting to that point first where, hey, uh, there's something red flag right here. Where is the line? Because, you know, if I say I'm going to do something, it doesn't mean I'm going to go do it. So should I then be punished? I mean, you get into those weird red flags. I'd, ra I'd rather err on the side of caution. Fair enough. And and many people agree with you. Many I, won't. I and many won't. And, and that's where we can't get anything done. Right. <laughs> but I do think if the NRA was more cooperative, we would get a lot. I mean, we had... I wouldn't say cooperative is the right word. I'd say more responsible. Well, both. Be more responsible and in that responsibility, cooperate and help us make better laws. After 101 California, we had an assault weapons ban for 10 years, and the only reason they wouldn't make it forever was George Bush was in uh, the president, and he wouldn't uh, agree to moving it forward for renewal. What's how, how can our communities and our society have changed so much? Of course, they'll say, well, that didn't prevent any, any uh, mass shootings. Uh, I think it did, because I don't recall hearing about how many uh, school shootings are happening every day 
we don't even hear about them anymore. When the most recent one was in, was it Maine? I mean, they interrupted the news, it came on, and I remember just feeling numb. Because what can we feel? It keeps happening. Yeah, and I, we have come numb to that. Uh, moving on, economy and jobs. California, depending on what you're reading, what polling you're looking at, what newspaper articles, California have lost residents. Jobs are leaving, companies are leaving. Others will say, no, people are coming, businesses are coming. How will you work to create better opportunities for businesses and people? Well, one of the reasons I'm understanding people leave is because they feel our taxes are too high. Yes, compared to the state of Idaho. Yes, compared to the state of Texas. But you're not getting the protections in those communities and those states that we have here. Yes, people don't like government telling them what they can and cannot do. But we need taxes from business and those who are very wealthy to help us fund these problems that everybody agrees are problems. And, you know, you're right, the migration out uh, was greater than the migration in. But again, let's look at the data of who those people were. And, you know, I've, I know some individuals who chose to move to Texas. Um, they could get their home less expensive and actually more bang for the buck. You can't blame somebody for doing that. And they were able to get a job there. And please, whoever is listening, Texan people are wonderful people. But I wouldn't want to live in Texas under the rules they have and with a governor that they have. I, I just don't get it. Uh, here's a man who feels he can defy the federal government by some arcane word in the Constitution that doesn't even meet the definition. But Okay, but then on the other side of that, you have the governor that's just letting anybody in. Well, I don't know any governor that's just letting anybody in. Because, I mean, I, I, I taped 60 Minutes and I watched it last night and there was a segment on this area down in Southern TikTok, California. TikTok. Well, and uh, <laughs> the, the people coming in were Chinese immigrants. Uh-huh. Uh, news to me, it was a fascinating story. I've never seen that either. I'm like, Chinese? They're using TikTok of how to play-by-play play to get in? Well, they're not the typical immigrant either. They're, they're not... What some would consider criminals, they come with uh, skill sets. Um, it was just a fascinating story, but they're leaving because of the anti-democratic uh, policies of the state of China. Um, so, I'd leave too. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think I'd want to live in. Ch- I know I don't want to <laughs> live in China, um, but we still have to have a better immigration system and. When I did go back and complete those last two years, it, we had a class on immigration policies and different things, and I was just amazed at the times in our life uh, over the course of the last two centuries where there were quotas, and there are still quotas because there are considered people from certain areas better than from other areas. You know, we're, we're not going to solve this problem tomorrow, but I think what's been passed by the Senate is now going to the house which they say is dead on arrival you know yes you probably do know what's in the bill but you know let's give it an up or down um what is in there that you can work with i i've read some of the things um and i've not been a fan that much of Kristen cinema but she did a good job along with senator langford and i think it's senator i can see his face the one from connecticut uh murphy i think um they've tried to reach 
what we first began talking about, that middle ground, not everybody's happy, but everybody got something. Yeah, and I and I and I'm not even gonna pretend to have a solution on the border. That that's good luck. You've been fighting this thing for 60, 70 years now. Uh, but we got to do something. And well, it doesn't help that the the Republican presidential leader tells them to not vote on it just because it's a well, better poli- po- look for him politically. So, so saying all that, back to the economy and jobs. You know, immigration is part of that overall problem, but Sacramento really hasn't done enough, in my opinion, to make it easier to create jobs. Well, and I there was an article in yesterday's paper, and it, it was about uh, the H-1B visa, and, you know, we're just not giving them out. We mean well, They the, jacked up the price. Well, I don't know about that. They didn't get into it. They just talked about... Went from 50 bucks to, like, 450 Well... I did the story on it. Oh, okay. Did I read it? <laughs> anyway, so people are getting visas in Canada, but they can, uh, because they work for a Canadian company, uh, or they can keep their jobs here, but they just move to Canada because they can do it uh, remotely. Obviously, that's most prevalent in the tech sector. And we need to keep those tech sector people coming because they, uh, they bring value to our economy. So... We've got to figure out a better way of doing that. So I I lied about that. So I just pulled up the article. So the fee registration goes from $10 to $250, and then the application fee goes from $460 to $780. Well, And that's for the H1B. And the law is you can't charge a fee that doesn't cover the expenses. So Inflation. Well, that's it. You know, people want to make more money. Labor has done a great job. I applaud what happened with the UAW. I think they were brilliant in how they went about their strike. Uh, What was that, six months ago? Well, and the best thing about that is the auto companies finally, oh, yeah, we're still going to make money. Right. I mean, (laughs) I've I've met with with, uh, labor advocates who said, the money's there, Karen. And when I show them, actually, no, the money isn't there. You know, we have a better conversation. If there is money there, and in my last year, I advocated for the highest wage cost of living increases ever. And um, I was supported by uh, others on the board. Our county administrator looked at me like, oh, my gosh. I said, we have to. We've had the best economy. The um, tax base is going up. We've told our employees for years and years, we can't do that much. We can only do this much. So we gave them contracts of 5% over for four years. So 20% plus we had the pandemic money for the $2,500 for every county employee, Uh, not those elected, but everybody else. So again, back to your question of, of jobs, we have to make our area, and we've got the northern waterfront here. Uh, a lot has been done, but so much more can be done on the potential to bring companies here, bring jobs. That's what you want so that you're not commuting. Um, and that's what I hope will happen when I hear the complaints about the Concord Naval Weapons Station. Oh, more money or more people, more traffic, blah, blah. Well, if they're coming shorter distances, um, then there isn't as much traffic. And, and that can only help the rest of the County. Yeah. And, and it goes back to what we talked about earlier with Prop 47 and, and these businesses that are closing down in San Francisco, Oakland. I mean, you start fixing that, 
the jobs and economy will take care of itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, as part of that 60 Minutes, uh, Chairman Powell was on. And uh, I love listening to anybody in, in that environment. And he is optimistic. He, uh, it, he explained in plain English that I could understand, as opposed to economists, why they're not going to uh, reduce rates probably in March. They don't know in, in six months. But it's because... Um, inflation is going down, and they're seeing that, and they don't want to create a problem where it goes back up. Well, you you increase or you reduce rates now. You got these nine hundred thousand dollar homes that are going to jump to one point three, one point four. It's going to be scary. Well, that's the other problem. You talk about housing. A lot of us have our homes. We may, you know, I've thought of moving, uh, but when I look at the interest rates and the interest rates I have right now. Why would I move? The only way to move is if you have enough equity and you can pay cash. Yeah. Because you, these interest rates are stupid. Well. But they're necessary because if you reduce this, I mean, it doesn't matter. You're going to pay more overall for the house. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and housing, again, I, I watched the, the Pleasant Hill market. I'm amazed at houses where friends of mine grew up. And when I think what they're going it, it's just amazing. But they've got a lot of uh, homes in Pleasant Hill have a lot of land attached to them. So let's build some ADUs there, um, accessory dwelling units. Um, it's a way for the homeowner to make some money or they can move into the ADU and rent out their home or, you know, a family member. We talk about taking care of our aging population. Mom and or dad could move in there and, and that helps. So, um, yeah, I mean, there it's... There's a lot of things that Sacramento is going to have to go through the next couple of years to actually, I don't want to say overcorrect the overcorrectness they did, but we have to get to the middle. We have and to I, get to the middle. And I don't care what race you're in. I want people towards the middle to actually get things done. And that's the problem I have with Contra Costa County, with a lot of these benches for city councils haven't been built very well. So you get the wackos. They're the only ones running because everyone's yelling and a normal person doesn't want to deal with that. Well, it was my uh, closing comment, as you may recall, when I left the board is my concern. In, in fact, I was, I was very honored that between Christmas and New Year's that year, that was 2022, I got a personal call from um, Congressman Adam Schiff. He had read my comments that you and others had posted and shared with me the same concern. Thankfully, we have a good field running uh, for the federal Senate position and most of the um, uh, congressional seats. But yes, you're right. In city councils, people are mad about the housing bills. So, you know, there's a city in our community in AD 15 who wants to reject everything coming out of Sacramento. And they're small. They don't have the money for the litigation, but we're not going to allow that. That is not a good elected official. You've got to figure out how to bring people to the table. Yeah, and then I, I mean, there's a lot of other bills too that I could give an example on that. And I just, people need to become better informed. And I'm hoping this podcast does this. We, I mean, we could go into a lot of single topics, but, you know, it's not fair to bring those up if some of your other opponents maybe might not come on and want to talk. So I wanted to kind of hit a, a generalization on a lot of these issues because we're already at an hour and 90 minutes. So, uh, Final thoughts. Um, Why should people vote for you? They should vote for me because I have the most elected experience at 20 years. I was a county supervisor, which is 
the best position to be in to go into Sacramento because we know the funding and how it works and how it impacts local government, not only counties but cities. Um, we've had more responsibility with larger budgets over um, uh, global, if you will, issues, and I don't mean global in terms of, of uh, the earth, global as it relates to those who live here in 8015, housing, health care, um, ability to access services, um, and the economy. I think our board did a great job. They're continuing to do that. We were fortunate that people passed Measure X. That gave us some flexibility to, to provide the services. That's the issue. You'll hear a, a constituent complain, all you want is more taxes and nothing changes. That's really... I actually think Measure X will improve a lot of things. Oh, it will. Uh, because there are what we call the, I call the five buckets. Um, and they all have to help improve the community. And, um, but some of that money had to go for infrastructure. And some of our advocates were very upset about that. Well, we didn't have the money, and now we do. It's a one-time expense. Uh, and so it goes away. On the other hand, we wanted to make sure we could... Um, increased capacity on fire services, especially out here in East County, oh, where for years um, people didn't want to raise their taxes to pay for more. Again, thank you, Prop 13. But now we could do that. Those are ongoing costs, and um, it's been an opportunity for people to learn about County Finance 101. It's it's not always easy to say, well, you could do this. You, know, you just need to, to find the money. Well, I'd love you to help me find the money, and, and we did uh, with Measure X. But some of that, as I said, will be ongoing because it does pay for salaries. See, I'm surprised, and we're totally off topic because I said we were going to end this. But the fire thing totally nerds me out because when you had East Contra Costa Fire and those three stations, the amount of services that Antioch, Pittsburgh, and even when you roll in Bay Point, Concord, Walnut Creek engines out here on bigger incidents – the lack, I mean, Antioch to Concord, you guys got screwed because you guys were funding East County, with, well, which they should do. Don't get me wrong. No, but you're right. We needed to find a better way to finance that because the citizens of Antioch and farther East County and Brentwood and, and what have you. We got free service. Yeah. Well, you didn't get free service, but there was more mutual aid yeah. and and we kept track of that financially and so yes fine from a financial perspective it hurt con fire however now with the consolidation you amazing have, you have economies of scale um and you know i'm proud every time everybody's protected now yeah i mean i'm not or proud, better protected i'm proud of the work the board did but i love seeing a fire engine out there blocking on a freeway because that saves the, the first responders, and it helps the traveling yeah. motorists. I was always amazed that people would just run into a fire truck. <laughs> it's happening more frequently. It's weird. I'm well, like, big red engine, slow but, down, go away. Well, and we've been able to purchase more of those big trucks, um, and they protect everybody. So, yeah, again, when I first came on the board and there was this, we had to close some fire stations, and people were, well, we pay more taxes, and we that isn't how it works. It's an insurance policy. As I used to say, you don't want a fire truck showing up at your house. You just want to know that one will. And technically, fire service is not required. No, it's not. People don't know that. So um, 
I really appreciate this. I, I think you will be an asset in Sacramento. Uh, I know the dynamics of the race are really kind of weird. Well, can I, I get back? Because I, I yeah. interrupted my own self telling you why I should be yeah. elected. Again, the years of service working uh, on multi-regional uh, bodies across the Bay Area, understanding what the concerns are, making those uh, uh, relationships with, with other elected officials likewise. Uh, and I am the middle candidate. I am the one that can bring people from disparate sides together. I've done it before. That's what I want to do up in Sacramento. I'm not looking to make a name for myself. I'm not looking to go into leadership because that takes away from the work that needs to be done here. There are others that can do that. Um, I also, uh, one of my uh, opponents likes to say that she's uh, uh, was born and raised here in the county, intimating that she's the only one that knows the county. Well, I've lived here longer in the county than she's been alive. Uh, that does say I'm a little bit older, but uh, I've seen the changes in this county, and um, I know from listening to the constituents how to best represent the assembly district because in a way it really is a, a moderate middle of the road type of, of, of county. As you mentioned at the beginning, public safety is the number one issue. Yes, we hear people are concerned about the homeless, rightfully so. But public safety is the number one issue, and I am the strongest law and order candidate there is. And I think that, that if people just Googled your opponent's names, they will verify that. Um, but yeah, I think the dynamics of this primary will come into play with just such an even field that voters really do need to do their research. And, and for me, Anna Marie is 100% no. Um, I just can't. You, you boycott Fourth of July. You, you did the Black Lives Matter marches. You, you brought in the attorney with the redistrict. I just can't. Um, I understand the argument in Antioch. People want to vote Monica just to send her to Sacramento to get her out of Antioch. I get that. Stupid. Your opponent, uh, the the Republican lady, Lido, she's not going to win in a general, so that's a wasted vote in my opinion. So to me, you're the one for AD15. That's just my opinion. Uh, you all could slam me later. But uh, I hope you pull it through. Well, Mike, thank you for the opportunity to come on and speak with your listeners because I do want to have a voice out here in East County. Uh, I'm not as well known, but I think, as you mentioned, if they Google all of us, they will see the work I've done and what I can continue to do up in Sacramento to make the lives of every Contra Costan, whether they're in AD 15 or not, better. And your website is karenmitchoff.com. Yes, it is. All right. For everyone else, do me a favor. Hit like, subscribe, and share. And for the news, ContraCosta.news. And I will see you next time. Take care.